Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 101 of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. This episode uh, is great, if you ask me personally, of course. I do I think they're all great? Eh, you know, some could have done better. This one's a really good one. I had the opportunity and the honor to talk to a friend of mine who we shared time in FBI inspection together back in 2013 timeframe. His name is James Clint Judd. He may have been the funniest guy I ever met in the FBI. And if you ever heard me talk, I complain a lot about my time in the inspection division. If ever there was hell on earth, the inspection division would be very close to what that would look like. But except for this fact that you do meet great people in the inspection division. And I did like many things in the FBI, had the honor of meeting a whole lot of really great people uh, within um uh, everywhere I went, really, um, honestly, uh, except for counterintelligence. I, I met Peter Strzok there, and so that's maybe a discussion for another day. But in inspection division, met some great guys, Earl Gould, Tim Duran, and Clint Judd, to name just a few. And so uh, Clint recently retired as the assistant special agent in charge uh, in the Albany field office. And so um, he graciously came on to talk a whole bunch of stuff about his career, uh, about a really interesting crimes against children case he had as the ASAC in Albany. We talked about leadership. We talked about a whole host of things. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy this interview. If you, if you want to if you if you like listening to like the nuts and bolts of how the FBI works, this is this is a, a great interview with Clint. So without any further ado, let's get right into that. So it's my honor to bring on to the Cyber Guy podcast recently retired FBI assistant special agent in charge of the Albany field office, fellow inter, uh, inspection division refugee, and perhaps the smartest or not smartest, sorry, the funniest man I've ever known. Probably smartest too, but certainly the funniest guy I ever had to work. I ever had the pleasure of working with Clint Judd. Clint, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Darren. I appreciate it. It's, so, uh, so let's start with, before we get into the funny stuff, because we got plenty of funny stuff. I mean, other than, you know, we can't talk email stuff, but we can talk certainly. Uh, other, I, oh, one thing I meant to mention in the introduction was the man who introduced me to Steel Panther. And so we'll... We'll certainly have to it's, 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 it's really kind of hard to get away from that man. <laughs> That's right, exactly. So uh, well, we'll get to that a little, little bit later. So so let's talk first how you got in the FBI, what did you do before uh, the Bureau, and then what made you decide to join the Bureau and, and then kind of roll from there? So I think that uh, pretty much everybody who joins the FBI has got their own reason for joining. Uh, um, in my case, uh, I was in Louisiana, and my father was an FBI agent. Uh, he was in the New Orleans office and I went through law school. I was working for a law firm, uh, had passed the bar, got a job uh, down in, in Louisiana. And uh, the FBI offer came and I was not finding uh, work as an attorney in a small firm to be, you know, what I had expected it to be. Uh, and I thought I'd get in the FBI, spend two or three years in the FBI and then I'd be a U.S. attorney. And then 28 years later, here I am retired. <laughs> so, so what year was that? What year did you get in? So I, I got in in 95. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so yeah. So you, and so you got in 95. How old were you, if you don't mind me asking? So I had just turned 26. 26. I was young. I was going to do some math and make see if you made it all the way through to mandatory. So you did not go to mandatory. So that's... No, no. You bailed early, you bailed early so to speak. But 28 is yeah, yeah. good. It's, that's, a good, that's a good length of time. So you were eligible in... Um, so you were eligible eight years ago? No, no, three years ago. Three years. Oh, because you weren't, weren't 50? Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're a youngster. You're a youngster. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that makes sense yeah. now to me. Okay, yes. As a, someone who's turning, I, I'm turning um, retirement required tomorrow. I'm not in the Bureau anymore, but if I was still in the Bureau, tomorrow they'd make me quit. So. Oh, well, happy early birthday. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. So first office, where'd you go first? So my first office was uh, my number 52nd uh, choice, Los Ooh. Angeles. Did you win the pool? Uh, and Did you win the pool? Uh, Did you win no, the... No, no. How's that we have, we have four guys who got um, number 56. <laughs> Those four bastards. <laughs> they just split it. They got 56 and had to split it. Yeah, they, 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 they all got New York City. <laughs> and so for those who don't know, I've mentioned this before in case you've, you've 
not you forgotten in every new agent class, everybody puts in 10, we put in 10 bucks with it, 10 bucks for you guys to puts in 10 bucks and whoever gets their worst office out of the 56 choices gets the pot. So how many people in your class? So we had 53. So we had, we had three, uh, we used to call them retreads, which is probably not politically correct. But, yeah. um, recycles. They call them recycles. Recycles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so five, about 500 bucks. And that not only did they not get to keep 500, they just split it four times. So awesome for them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, probably the person who took it worse was a person who was uh, from North Dakota mm. and he had never been out of North Dakota and he got New York city. Oh uh, yeah. And so that was not necessarily his, his favorite, but, um, ended up being a great experience for him. Great experience for me going to LA to be honest with you. And what did you work? So this was 95. What did you work? What was the main, I mean, what was your focus, your main investigative focus? So my first two years, I worked uh, white collar crime, mm-hmm. uh, mainly bank fraud, wire fraud, uh, ACH, you know, wire transfer, check kiting, telemarketing fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in 97, I went to work at the time, we called it cargo theft, but that's actually theft from interstate shipment retail, uh, organized crime. Mm. And so I uh, did that for multiple years along with gangs. Uh, and then I eventually switched over to fugitives. 2003, I went to Iraq, got back from Iraq, and moved over to a joint terrorism task force. And so kind of had a variety of different uh, squads I worked on. So what did you do in Iraq? What was that particular assignment? So if it was 2000, so it 2003, right? So right at the beginning of the war, you got over yeah. So in Iraq, I went over with the uh, LA SWAT team. Mm. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, for the bigger field offices, we had rapid deployment teams. Back then, there wasn't a fly beam. Mm. And so I went over as part of the rapid deployment team from LA, I mm-hmm. uh, went up to Mosul, and basically I served as the liaison officer with the FBI, with the Army, regarding uh, the collection of evidence. Okay. And we would send evidence uh, back to the lab. And that would be, you know, anything from fingerprints to bomb making materials in the hopes that we could uh, capture high value targets. And how long were you there? How long did, how long was that deployment? About a hundred days. Okay. Did you enjoy it? Was it, I mean, was it, I, I bet it was fascinating from a, from a, you know, Louisiana lawyer guy to yeah. being in. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was over there with another uh, LA SWAT buddy uh, who was former military uh, and so he kind of showed me the ropes as far as that went. Uh, but I was happy to be just part of it. Uh, it was all new to me. I had never uh, collected evidence overseas. I definitively never collected evidence getting off a helicopter overseas. Uh, we were not there to kick in the doors. That's not what mm-hmm. the you know the military didn't need the FBI for that. Sure. Was that your first? Want- was that your first overseas going anywhere overseas in your life? So, no, I, I had been overseas uh, a couple times before, uh, primarily for uh, attorney general director's detail. Oh, okay. And it, so in L.A., I've gone to Asia a couple times. I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to um, Japan, Thailand, Malaysia, <clears throat> uh, but mainly on detail type work. Right. So you come back from so you come back from Mosul and you go to a terrorism squad. How long did you do that? So. I was on the uh, Long Beach RA uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force from 2003 to 2005. Uh, well, actually, 2003 to 2006. Uh, in 2006, I got a uh, office of uh, OP transfer uh, to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stayed on the JTTF. Came to Tulsa, stayed on the JTTF until 2010. 2010 to 2013, I was a supervisor of the JTTF. Um, I was over special events. Uh, the JTTF had four uh, counterintelligence bodies and two cyber bodies. So let me ask. So let me ask you this question. So you got so Tulsa or Oklahoma was your office of preference, but you're from Louisiana. Why was your wife from Oklahoma? Was that what uh, what made you put that on your no, list? No, no. In fact, uh, her family was from Louisiana, oh, okay. but um, we did not want to go back to Louisiana. Uh, because at the time I was, I just got to be a GS 13 and to live in the public schools there, we would have had to live on the North shore and rather than have, have um, having to send our children to private schools, 
we decided to go to Oklahoma where my mom and dad lived. Ah, okay. Gotcha. So it was just easier to have um, kind of a family network, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, so twenty we're in twenty thirteen. Sorry, I interrupted. Oh, so you were, so let me let me step. So you were on a you ran a squad that had cyber to it, right? Yes. How many agents work in cyber? So I have two agents work in cyber. Uh, one who was really a true cyber type uh, agent, like that was his background. Mm-hmm. One who was a uh, crimes against children agent, but at the time, uh, cyber also included the crimes against children, right. or vice versa. Uh, he, Though, you know, that's the same as saying somebody took a MacBook and threw it through a window and then reached in to open the door and called that cybercrime. It's just not <laughs> Right, right, right. Did you know Scott Pierre when you were there? I did not, no. Okay. Sorry. He, was, uh, he was in Huntsville, and I know he came from Oklahoma City. Okay. I'm pretty sure, but whatever. doesn't matter. That's a, that's a side story that we can talk about separately. Uh, so, yeah. so you're doing the cybercrime. And then 2013, I know where you went then at 2013. Yes. Yeah. Decided to come to the inspection division. <laughs> 2013, I joined you in inspection division. Uh, you may be surprised to know this, but I've talked to team leaders recently, like right before I retired, who said it's every bit as bad as it was when we were there. <laughs> is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> we're 10 years down. Well, I mean, and, I, and I'm sure we would tell people who'd been there 10 years before us, it's just as bad as it was when you were here. So I don't it's just things don't change. Who are we kidding? Um, I, I think it's better for the inspectors. Yeah, yeah uh, they don't do anything. <laughs> I, th- I think for them, it is a, it's, it's a better gig overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a guarantee. It's like, you don't go there guaranteed anymore and you're going to be an SAC in a year. Okay. I think it was a two, three year, you know, work your way through it, but it looks like they're working like more routine hours, but the, but the team leaders, they were still doing the getting in early, leaving late. Mm-hmm. Like y- you and Tim, man, God bless you guys doing what you did as far as just the commute goes. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come in on week. And that was the kicker. Like when it was a, and it's probably the best headquarter job if you wanted to get headquarter time because it's only a year, right? Did you get full headquarter credit for that? I, I did. Yeah. Did so, remember, when did, remember when they did the six month, that was the best headquarters. Job. Oh, I don't remember that, but that's, yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Cooler, uh, Amir, Larry, uh, those guys, they did the six month in six month home. That was uh, not the best gig ever. Well, I got to think during COVID, it was probably a pretty good gig. Oh, yeah, you would think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah right. So, uh, so you you took the traditional route through. So inspection division, people go there to be team leaders, to become ASACs. You do everything you can do to do the paperwork you need to do to get ASAC certified and have people who can be on your board and all that kind of stuff. We're not getting in get the minutiae of all that because it's, it's a black period of my life that I prefer not to refer to, talk to you if I don't have to. Um, but, but you at least became, so you, be, you became an ASAC out of that, right? So I went. I became an ASAC in Denver. Mm-hmm. I went over to Denver as the uh, Intel admin and cyber ASAC. Uh, Denver's a fantastic city. I highly recommend that uh, if you're an agent and you like that area, put your name in, get there. Uh, beautiful office. Uh, the RAs are in some, like some of the RAs are just the most stunning places. Um, but. Uh, did that for a year. Then I switched over, uh, over the criminal branch. And when I was at the criminal branch, uh, I don't know if you know this, Darren, but I've, I've got a daughter with disabilities mm. and she started having a, uh, issues with a, uh, with her stomach that, uh, caused her to have, uh, some surgeries and it was not working out where I was in Denver and she was in Tulsa. So I stepped down. Yeah, I did know that. I knew that's why you stepped down. So I didn't know that was, it was, yeah, for family reasons. Um, and so, so does, correct me if I'm wrong, as a side, side question. Does Denver still lead the Bureau in number of random drug tests? Is that still true? I, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> it, they used to be pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strong number. But so many states now have. Uh, lead yeah, right. Yeah, so, right. So everybody's catching. Everybody's, I'm sorry. Every little marijuana <laughs> joke there. So, all right. So you step, you step down, you go back to Tulsa, right? Go go back to Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, okay. Um, and work on the uh, JTTF. So I do that for four years. Uh, and I, I'll tell you what, the FBI would completely disagree with this. But if you wanted really, really good leaders, make them step down. Make them step down 
get them two years back in the field where they understand what their decisions are doing to the people in the field. Mm-hmm. Then let them set back up <clears throat> because I was certainly, I became an ASAC in Albany over the criminal branch. I was certainly a better ASAC the second time around. And why do you think that is? What was the, what was the, what was the thing? Cause I love talking leadership on this podcast as well, because one of my, one of my hobby horses, I guess you can say that I've taken up lately is cyber leadership, obviously in the, in the private sector. And there's just not a lot of cyber leadership. Um, and so, so talk about that a little bit. You, you second in command of a field office, step back down just to a squad supervisor and then come back as a, as second in command. What is, so what is it that, what's that, what is it that created that leadership shift for you? Oh, so I stepped down all the way to 13. I was, I was oh, right. oh, okay. Okay. I did. Yeah. My bad. Um, sorry. Uh, I, I think the key is that if you spend enough time in management and I'm talking above supervisor, I'm talking ASAC, uh, assistant section chief, unit chief and above, you've been far enough away from frontline management that sometimes you forget that the data, data decisions you make have a huge impact on what people are trying to do in the field. And sometimes you don't communicate why you're making those decisions <clears throat> And if you don't commu- make that communication easy for your, your employees, your employees aren't going to make communication easy back to you. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes these decisions would be made. And if you don't understand why the decision is being made, you just see it as this. Why is this random ad- administrative burden being placed upon me? <clears throat> but when I went back up as an ASAC, I made sure that every supervisor, I, I had a meeting every Tuesday. Uh, every, every Monday or Tuesday at two o'clock and uh, every supervisor knew exactly why I was making the decisions I was making, what the, what the responsibility of the supervisor was and what I expected from my employees. Um, now, not every decision is going to be one that everybody loves. It's just not. Right. But there's a lot to be said that in both having a open door policy where you'll listen to anybody that walks in and having a policy where you communicate to everybody in the simplest possible means. I don't think that, well, let me put this different way. I think that sometimes we make things too difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, we put out a 50-page report when a two-page report would do. Uh, mm-hmm. Or we have a two-hour rambling session where we could say in five minutes up front, here's exactly what I need to have accomplished. And if we can do this, everybody can get their work done today and go home. <clears throat> but if I give you six different, very confusing directions, you end up staying until midnight <clears throat> trying to figure out what I just was, what I just asked of you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when I came, became an ASAC again, I think that I got much better at making my communication much more direct, much more simple, and just much more friendly. <clears throat> uh, not that I wasn't friendly before. But I think that, that it goes a long way. So no two-hour struggle sessions, you're saying, on a weekly basis? No, no. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and that's great, right? And, but, and did that funnel to – I assume there were two or three ASACs in, your, in Albany at least, right? So, so Albany is the sixth smallest field office, so there are only two, two ASACs. Okay, right. Yeah, you're, you're one above Birmingham So when they had two yeah, yeah. So, so did, that, did that leadership style transfer to the other ASAC as well, or he – or did he have his just his own style and he wasn't going to care what you said? No, no, he was, he was great. He's actually uh, an inspector right now. Um, so he's not that great. <laughs> no, he, uh, he, he, uh, he, he will make a great SAC one day. His name is Pat O'Brien. Um, and he is very uh, verbally intelligent. He communicates well. Um, his communication style and mine are very different. Uh, and maybe it's just my upbringing. I'm a little bit kind of slower South and he is more of a New York communicator. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, we both got the same directions and all of our people got the, got the same message just in different ways, but he actually, he's going to do fantastic. So, Uh, so when did you retire? Just very recently, right? 
Yeah, May 31st. May 31st. Okay, yeah, so less than a month. So let me ask you this question. I haven't had anybody on with that recent a retirement date. Everybody else has kind of been out for a year or two, you know, before yeah. all the real bad stuff has hit the fan here for the FBI. So from a field office perspective, so obviously we look at, I mean, if you look at the news, you know, either if you talk to one side, the FBI is great, fantastic, doing all the things right. The other side, corrupt, you know, doing all the things wrong, fascist, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And I continue to defend, say, look, at the end of the day, the field offices and the people in the field offices, the, the frontline people doing the work are doing the work they're supposed to do. It's a small cadre of individuals at FBI headquarters that's making this all look bad. From, a, from just getting out, from the internal perspective of the, of the bureau agent and the, and the folks working in the field, what did, what did all of this look like for you guys? If you, can, if you can talk about that. I understand if you can't, but I just figured I'd ask. Oh, oh no, I, I think that... Uh... I think that it is it's it's very easy to attack the FBI because it's a bureaucracy. You're not attacking an individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I think that I'll greatly miss about the FBI are the people that I worked with. Uh, I think that they had incredibly high ethical standards. I think that they were good people. I think that every now and then we do have people that make mistakes. We're an organization of thirty seven thousand. You are gonna have some people who make bad judgment calls. That's just that's just how it goes. Um, but I don't, I don't personally know anybody who ever intentionally went out of their way to try to break a law. I don't know anybody that ever intentionally went out of their way to be a bad moral or bad ethic, eth- ethically unsound person. Right. Um, and I'm, I would defend that every day of the week. And I think I'd say, I mean, when we were in inspection, we had bad inspectors, people that were just bad leaders, but they were just bad leaders. It wasn't really their fault. The Bureau doesn't do a great job of, they try. I mean, I think they, they, they try to create leadership functionality, but it's, it's, I mean, the stuff at least that I went through, uh, like what was the, in 2014, 15, what MIMS, was it MIMS? Was that what it was called? The something intelligence thing that everybody, every 14 and 15 had to go through. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. 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 So yeah, it's, and it was all contractors and it was all, you know, here, here's a bunch of Legos. Are you going to make a Lego as a team? And okay, that's, it doesn't really help me. Yeah, I, I, I'm not certain that our uh, they are redoing the leadership process right now, Darren. Again, wow. Yeah, so uh, to be a 15, they're going to redo the leadership process. Uh, it's once again going to be, you know, what can we do to ensure that we're getting the right people to be senior leaders in the FBI? But the I, I don't know that the KSAs, if people know knowledge, skills, and assessment, remember those huge sure. written documents you had to, had to write? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Uh, I don't think it was any worse than the new system where it was a, you know, PowerPoint or whatever it was. Yeah, dude. Two, 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 ES, two SESers and a ASAP would sit down and judge you based upon your answers you would give. And then uh, you also had the, uh, the written portion. I, I don't know that that was necessarily any better than the KSAs. I, in fact, I think in some ways it was worse. <clears throat> so I, I don't know what the right answer is though, because I think that they, they, the FBI genuinely does look at what other corporations do outside the government mm-hmm. to see, you know, how do you get good leaders? And they've tried to assimilate that, but I just don't know that it necessarily works in a bureaucratic organization like, like the FBI. And I still think, and I will say this until I die, until, no one's going to prove me off of it, but I think the seven-year up and out is still a bad plan. I, mean, you, I think we lose some of our best leaders because of it. Yeah, I mean, because you've got, you've got good leaders that just don't want to move their family every two years to move up the line um, because it's just not an enjoyable experience. Unless that's your gig. If you're single, then sure, moving every couple of years and moving up is great. But, um, you know, if you've got wife and family and, you know, like your situation, it's just not conducive to, hey, let's now let's be an SAC. We're going to now move to Honolulu. And then in a year and a half, I'm going to come back and be an assistant director. Um but whatever. I mean, we're not, this is not a, this is not a leadership. We, we've talked leadership. Let's, let's get to cyber stuff. Let's forget all that crap. Let's talk, okay. let's talk cyber <laughs> stuff. And the, so you were telling me when we were talking the other day that when you were in Albany, you had a good, uh, an interesting cyber case with a news guy, right? Oh, so there was a CNN executive producer um, and he owned a ski house in Vermont. And he would travel to that ski house. And when he was at that ski house, he would, um, at least on one occasion, uh, contact moms and talk about bringing their daughters to uh, the house. 
and this has been in the news <clears throat> uh, and not necessarily in a good way for the FBI. Uh, he convinced a mom to bring her very young daughter to his house. He picked him up, brought him to the house and uh, did some things that were heinous. Um, sure. And so we get information about it. Uh, Las Vegas uh, contacts us, says we think that this has happened. We get a search warrant. Uh, because of the way that the evidence was seized and the way that we were operating across many, many states, mm-hmm. it took a long time to get him indicted. Uh, and so the FBI took a lot of flat because, hey, look, it took you a year to indict this guy. How many other people has he potentially done this to? Uh, we don't believe that anybody else was victimized, but that's not to minimize what happened because what happened was absolutely horrendous. Was he? Uh, I assume he was filming and sharing, right? Basically, he, he was. He was yeah. filming and sharing. Okay. And well, yeah, uh, we can leave it at that. But yeah, yeah. but he um, he pled. Uh, but this was one of those particular cases where it's it is normally a male oriented crime. Mm-hmm. For a mom to get involved and to bring her daughter into it is very very unusual. Uh, we just don't, we just don't see that very often. <clears throat> what we do see though are the encrypted chat rooms uh, that he used. <clears throat> uh, and I got to say that if you are letting your kids on Snapchat, chat, Discord, uh, Imager, WhatsApp, and you don't know what they're what's going on on that peer to peer encrypted. Uh, platform that they're using, you're making a very, very big mistake. Um, because it wasn't just him. We also had a lot of sextortion that mm. we were seeing. We had, we unfortunately had uh, a couple of uh, high school children uh, commit suicide because of sextortion. Uh, I just saw a story in Michigan with the same thing. Uh, was one of them, was, was one, I'm sorry, was one of them the one in Potsdam, New York? Was that part of, yeah, because that's, that's where I grew up. I grew up near that area. So that's, that, I remember seeing that in the news that a that, uh, uh, 15 or 16-year-old kid in Potsdam had, had killed himself because of exactly that thing, the sextortion kind of thing. And, and, you know, the other thing that parents don't think about is even beyond the sextortion, let's just talk the sexting piece. Um, if, you know, your, your daughter's boyfriend, if your daughter sends her boyfriend an image of herself and then they break up and he sends it, to all his friends, he has now committed distribution of child pornography and could theoretically be arrested and then placed on, and you know, he's not, he's not going to get a clearance and all that stuff. I don't think parents think enough about the issues with that. And exactly like you're saying, because with, so let's go back to the CNN guy. So he was using encrypted channels to communicate, I assume. Yeah. And, and you, you have no way to see what he's saying, right? Or did no, you, we, we had no way at the time. Right. Stored them on his, uh, on his iPhone. Okay. He, and because he stored them, well, I say iPhone, it might have been Android, I, I just can't remember. Um, but because he stored them on his device, uh, we were able to use the software program to pull those. Uh, so when you did the search warrant of his house, and it took a year to get prosecuted, what did CNN do with him during that time? So CNN put him on leave. Okay. Immediately. Um, and they were well aware uh, of what the allegation was. Because when the arrest went live, I mean, it was it was a very very big deal. Because uh, he had been the executive producer, I think, on the uh, Chris Cuomo uh, show, <laughs> and so it's not like he was an unknown. Sure, he, he was very well known. <clears throat> um, and obviously, the little girl was a victim. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the the mom. And, and this was a, it was a weird situation where I believe it was a stepmom and not the real mom. I think the real mom was back in Vegas. <clears throat> um, but the stepmom was like his partner <clears throat> uh, in doing some of the things that, that occurred. Mm. But his family is also a victim in that situation because he gets arrested. They don't know anything about it. <clears throat> and all of a sudden they start getting threats. Mm. <clears throat> was he married with kids? Yes, I believe so. Awesome. I mean, not awesome, but that's, you know, I sarcastic yeah. awesome, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it's kind of one of those things where 
once once the search warrant uh, took place, you know how search warrants tend to go. Mm-hmm. It's either one of, one of two ways: you go in and, and there's nothing at all, right? Or you go in looking for one thing and, it's, and it snowballs into thirty other things. And this is one of those that snowballed into many other things. Sure. Did you polygraph him? No, he uh, he he got an attorney fairly quickly. Oh, okay, uh, and did not did not do a polygraph. Uh, Albany had, at the time had a fantastic uh, polygrapher, and I think that that is a it's a great way for uh, child pornography cases to end. Yes, uh, and we used it successfully. And I'm sure you used it in Birmingham all the time. No, Cleveland. So not so much in Birmingham because. The like you know the the violent crime against children kind of went to victim um, violent crime and so I didn't really was involved with them in Birmingham but in Cleveland it was still a cyber program and so our polygrapher at the time was kind of cutting edge for polygraphers in the bureau in two thousand nine two thousand ten he's like hey anytime you go on a child pornography case I'd like to come along and see if I can interview the subject and. You know, most of those cases were image cases. So we had evidence of people trading in images, not so much abusing children, but just trading in images. But but he would go in and he would convince them to do a polygraph and he would nine times out of 10 get a confession of them engaged in physical touching as well. So it was it was a great process that we had there but so i'm glad to see that more offices are doing that because you can get a lot more out of it because you there's ways that they spin the questioning that makes it sound to the to the subject that well if i do this i'm not i'm going to get away with all bunch of stuff and then they you can't yeah i i do think that the uh the polygraph really does rest upon the polygrapher the, mm-hmm. the polygrapher makes all the difference in the world so when you were so when you so in Albany you cover the north half of New York plus Vermont, yes. um, right? You don't have New Hampshire's Boston, right? So you just you just New have Hampshire's Vermont, Boston. yeah. So so from a from a cyber from a traditional cyber perspective, um, what was your what were you mostly dealing with? Was it business email compromise and ransomware your two big ones, or was it romance fraud? What were your big cyber? So because Albany's Albany's kind of like Birmingham was. Um, if you so the supervisor up there um, handled a huge amount of BC cases were, were, were probably the huge one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't get the ch- because I wasn't over cyber there. I, oh, okay. I didn't get a chance to see. Gotcha. But, but uh, I did see a lot of the business uh, email compromise, <laughs> um, in particular with hospitals. That was like a. a oh really, yeah. Sure. Really, really big issue. Um, <clears throat> but um, she also, she had all the criminal related cyber issues and the national security. Oh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything, just because it's a small office, you know. Mm-hmm. In, in New York City or L.A., you'd never see that. Right, but, right, right. Uh, <clears throat> did, did you, did, now, did you have all the cyber stuff for the division? In Cleveland, yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. Um, but we were, we were a large office when I was there. We became the 17th largest office. Oh yeah. So everybody, cause at, uh, when I got there for the first year, if you were a new agent at two and uh, three years, you were moving. So I lost three agents cause they were new and they had to move at three years. And then a year in, um, the SAC at the time was able to convince headquarters that we should be a big office. And so we got out of the, having to, we got people transferring in, which was nice, nice change of pace. Yeah. 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 And then, but I was only there for two years, so didn't do as much. And then in, same thing in uh, when I came to Birmingham, I was a counterintelligence supervisor, but I worked closely with the cyber group all the time. Um, so don't, don't, don't you kind of don't you feel kind of feel like on the counterintelligence side that uh, you should have two or three cyber bodies assigned? To every oh yeah. Body? Oh, I had two cases that were mostly cyber oriented, and actually, and the cyber squad had a case that was counterintelligence oriented, and it re- I think what that one is still doing some stuff, which is really it's been. Knowing what they did, it was pretty fascinating. Uh, hopefully, someday they can talk about it because it's really good stuff. But it's the same thing where it's you know it's Chinese and Russian and Iranian actors, and they're able to communicate with them and do sorts of stuff, and it's it's really great. Um, and I think and and that's I've been I've said this on this podcast many times that those two things have really come together. That's what I went to headquarters for originally. The second time was to blend cyber and counterintelligence, um, and then a lot of things happened. Ended up in inspection. 
sadness incurred. Then you came along and made it happy for me. <laughs> uh, I, I think the first time you and I really worked together was WFO. Yeah, no, we didn't. We have the that leadership special that special well, leadership no, we, we, thing yeah, we, we did. did. That's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So funny, we talked about leadership. So one of the things we did in inspection was they wanted to revamp how they looked at leaders. So you want to talk a little bit about how they looked at leaders before then and then after then? Ooh, that's kind of a, that's a wide range of topic. Um, <laughs> yeah. They, they, they had gone away before Darren and I got into ins- in the inspection division from interviewing anybody about leadership whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so they decided to go to a new process where they're going to interview about half the personnel. And then they want to interview all the personnel regarding every leader in the FBI <clears throat> and because they had no process in place, it was creating everything from whole cloth. Right. And we got, we were the lucky ones to head up that process to create it. And what is the, what is the one term that we still use to this day that came out of that? The one thing that came out of all that training, thanks to Bob, what's his last name? Bob Shields. Bob Shields. Shields. Robert Shields. Yes. Someone who'll uh, never be on this podcast, but will be talked about badly when, when he can. Our, I'm not certain which one to guess because there were several, but uh, I, I don't want any freeform text box. That's the one, freeform, freeform text box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't explain what that is. I don't even know if I can explain it. I could never explain what it is. I could never make it work, but that's what he wanted. So what was it? What was it, a freeform text box? I, I, I'm not really certain exactly what it was. <laughs> I think it, now they they do where it's, it's many fewer questions, Aaron. Okay. And it is much more of a conversation. And it's almost written like a 302. Yeah. Like, here's like eight questions, and it's more than that. But here's eight questions, and just kind of discuss with me what your leader does. Oh, that's but, good. But when we did it, it was like 50 questions. <laughs> yes, it was, it was, and it was different questions for different groups of people. Yeah. And uh, to be quite honest with you, a lot of it didn't make a great deal of sense when, when it first started. And wasn't uh, w, was WFO the guinea pig for it for the big process? They had started doing it a little bit, like in San Diego and Seattle. They had done something, but it wasn't what he wanted. And so WFO was the role. Because I remember having to go through every squad at WFO and pick half the people to be interviewed pre so, before we got there. So, so San Diego uh, was the very first one, and they completely made it up. Like right. there was no rhyme or reason. Uh, then Seattle, it was a little more formalized. And then by the time WFL came around, uh, we had really cut down on the questions. Uh, you started the process to kind of highlight who was going to be interviewed. Uh, you set up that huge, massive spreadsheet. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and regardless of what anybody tells me, I think that the hardest working people at Inspection Vision are the maps. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Then uh, they did the trends and the themes that in turn the inspectors would present to the SAC or the ADIC and say, here's what your leaders are doing good. Here's what you're doing bad. And I think you had left by the time we hit Chicago. I was good. Yeah. WFO was my last, the last day at WFO was my last, the WFO inspection was my last day in inspection. Okay. So by the time we got to Chicago, it had changed dramatically. And I was doing the training for every person that was going, every team leader and assistant inspector in place. <clears throat> um, and so it had changed fairly dramatically by then. And Dave Jellos had taken over. Um, and Nancy McNamara was still the assistant director and Mark Morgan was still the DAD. And so they would, you know, kind of tinker with, you know, we're going to change out these three questions, put these new three questions in. But what you didn't, what you hoped you wouldn't see is anything that would, you know, we just did these leadership questions, but now we need to talk to Office of Professional Responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that really didn't happen. So I was pretty happy about that. But um, Yeah, because on San Diego, where they didn't really have a process, they took out two ASACs. Yeah. And we took out, and we took out an SAC, didn't we, on, our, on WFO? I know we did. We took out one SAC, the Intelligence right. SAC. You know, I, I wasn't there because remember, I, I was only there for the first week, and then they, uh, the they pulled me back to work on the Seattle inspection. Right, before. right, right. Yeah, the yeah. The, you did you leave before everybody got sick? So during the WFO, the WFO inspection, we were yeah. in this room. How many people were in there? You figure sixty had to be sixty. At least there are four teams. 
of at least 15, 20 each. It was huge. Everybody got sick. It was the middle of winter, and everybody got sick. I think we had over 100. It was a freaking Petri dish in that place. I was I was taking DayQuil every three hours. It was so bad. <laughs> and I do remember um, us asking all the, all the different questions. You're compiling them all. And then we would have the meetings with uh, – who was it? It was Bob Shields, and who was the other – Howard Marshall. Yeah, and Howard didn't time, care. Howard didn't give two craps. He was there. He was just there as a second inspector, and he he was like, "I have no responsibilities here whatsoever." But I'll be here as a I'll be here as a second inspector. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he ended up leaving the FBI early. I know he went to Cyber Division so he could do a coffee cup tour at Cyber Division and say he had cyber bona fides, and he got a job at Ernst and Young or one of the one of the I forget one of the consulting okay, firms. Yeah. yeah, I think he's. I mean. But I, I guess it when he turns fifty, does he get his stuff? He's got to go work for a week, right? He had twenty years; he just wasn't fifty. So he's got to well, go I, back. I, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he had twenty years done fifty because like a bunch of them did it at the same time. So I know a bunch of people that did that left before they were eligible, but had had twenty years. So once they turn fifty, they just have to go work for a government entity for a week or a pay period, and then they get their full full retirement, allegedly. That's how that goes. Whether it works or not, I don't know. I haven't paid attention to it because <clears throat> I did the right way. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I never thought about doing it that way. But, um, <laughs> but, but I knew that he, he had uh, gone to cyber and then left. Um, but by the t- time I left um, inspection division, you'd been gone. You and Tim had both been gone for right, at least four months. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then I left right after I did, I think, Knoxville Division. And by then, even all the mappers that I knew had left. <clears throat> so. Oh, right. that's, inter- that's interesting because the mappers are like full-time employees in inspection. That's the kicker. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they were, yeah, I don't remember half their names. Most of, I don't remember any of the names, but it was, they were, they were good. They were mostly good people from what I remember. Well, mostly really good people. Yeah. Um, in fact, in fact, I keep in touch with quite a few of them, but um the um, the the burnout rate for those mappers sure was awful. yeah um, because every time every two weeks when you go in an inspection is two weeks long and they run from seven a.m. to ten eleven at night doing all it's all it's all administrative paperwork crap yeah and yeah and the, the idea is I mean it used to be anyway it's been ten years and maybe it's you, know, you said it hasn't changed so it hasn't changed they usually go there looking to there's someone's head's going somewhere. There's going to be a head rolling. Someone, some heads rolling. Cause some, not everybody can be doing it the right way. And it's funny. I got lucky because when I got to Birmingham, they were supposed to have an inspection in my third year there. Um, and then there was, there was something happened where inspection was so understaffed. Like they were having trouble doing inspections. They just didn't have enough people. And they ended up they ended up doing like a preliminary look at Birmingham and said, you know, we can't find anything anything with you guys. We're going to cancel it this year. So I ended up getting canceled until the year the summer of the year I retired and I'd stepped down. So I didn't have to do the paperwork for my program because I'd stepped down. I I'd help the one guy answer a couple of questions, but I'm like, this good good luck, good to you. Good, good. And he was yeah, acting. Yeah. He was acting. So I stepped down because I had to. I was a mandatory step down. He was acting, and the new the new supervisor wasn't there yet. So this poor acting supervisor had to do all the inspection stuff. So I felt I, I mean I helped him where I could, but I didn't kill myself for it. I, I, I do think that uh, the the good thing about inspection were people like you and Larry and Tim, sure, that I could sit and laugh with. Yeah. Uh, the bad thing was everything else. You know, right, I mean, right, right. And let's uh, be clear, we're talking Larry Lap. Yes. There's another yes. Larry that we're not talking about. No, that we're, no, that we're not referring you, to. You, you are correct. <laughs> I, I apologize. And Earl. Did you mention Earl? Oh no, Earl's fantastic. Shout out to Earl Gould. I got I should give him a call and see if he can come on. He'd be mm-hmm. he'd be, actually we should get you, you, him, and Tim, and we do one big podcast and just talk about inspection division. Oh we, we could do like a hundred of them. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if you'd ever get a listener though. That's yeah. the problem. So when did you, so you introduced me to the, so for those who don't know the band Steel Panther, look them up. What's the name of the song? 
Community property. Yeah, look up community property <laughs> by Steel Panther, and don't hate me afterwards for looking it up. But it is it's a it's a hilarious, and that magnet and steel were your other things. But yeah, and the funny thing is, we were we sat in the back row of the of the aisle we were in, which was nice because we kind of hide away from everybody. Yeah, which was yeah. good. And were you were you the, were you there when I Ben Stone was there? He was still there when you were there. Yeah, yeah, we'd come over and talk, and so I would dial his number, so his phone would ring, and he'd run to go get it, and I'd hang up on him. <laughs> I don't remember that, but that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think he's an A-lad over, overseas now. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, happy for him. So, what's your your proudest moment in the bureau? What's your proudest moment in the FBI? If you go back twenty eight years, that's a lot of probably really good, good, good moments. What's what stands out to you? Oof. Was it getting your inspection plaque with all your with all your coins? That was probably it, wasn't it? That that was a big one. Yeah, that was a big one. Um, <laughs> Probably, uh, probably a series of small things, Darren. Like, I, I did have a uh, have a really good case in LA, um, arresting 78, 78 people, uh, one massive indictment, and uh, pretty proud of that. Just simply because it was a three year long effort. Wrote a bunch of t- Title Threes, mm. uh, had a Group One undercover that I was case agent on, and that's one of those things that really. You should come in the FBI to do. What was the violation? What were they? What were they doing illegally? So, they were gangs that were organ, doing organized retail theft. Okay. They're also doing drugs and um, running a prostitute ring. Mm. But the reason that we got onto them was because they were robbing the port line. Okay, gotcha. And so, got the chance to do that. And that was that was really good. Um, then probably the other thing was like I got the chance to write a FISA. Which, if you've never written one, uh, man, that's a lot of work. <laughs> unless you're headquarters, unless you're headquarters investigating yeah. political opponents, it's very easy. But that's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, but I, I wrote a FISA um, that led our overseas partners to uh, stop an imminent uh, terrorist attack. Uh, was very, very uh, happy about that because there was a chance a lot of innocent people could get killed. What was the target yeah. area? Uh, U.S. military base overseas. Okay. Uh, but uh, the foreign partner, uh, sometimes they were cooperative and sometimes they weren't, mm-hmm. which, you know, that, that, that's just kind of the way it goes. Right. But um, get to do things that, you know, you wouldn't expect. Like, I got to go to the uh, Olympics in Greece. Mm. You know, little things like that where you get the chance to take the skills that you never expect. Like nobody ever says, Hey, you're in law school. You're going to be end up, end up in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody ever says, you know, Hey, when you're in college, are you going to be on the LA SWAT team and in these houses, you know, at 5am in the morning mm-hmm. and nobody ever says, Hey, the best friends you're ever going to meet are going to be the people that sit next to you every day. Right. And <clears throat> it's not that you are, uh, Everybody has their own lives after the FBI. <clears throat> and you and I hadn't talked in years, but when we talked the other day, I felt like no time had passed. Right, exactly. Yep. I think and it was I think last time we talked, I was in I was in your sitting in your office in Denver. Yeah. I mean, so <clears throat> it's just been one of those things where you meet some certain people, like I could go to I think I could go to Tim Durant's house tomorrow and it would be like no time had passed. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll miss that. I'll I'll miss being able to pick up the phone with some friends that I know that I probably just won't keep in touch with. And that's not because of them. That's because I'm just a sucky friend. <laughs> um, but uh, like the uh, LA SWAT team has a reunion every year. Uh, so I might go to that this year just to see some old friends who are like, you know, they're in their sixties now. Oh yeah. And they're, they're happy. They, they look good. <clears throat> and I see all these retired guys that look better than they ever did when they were in the FBI. Right. And, uh, you know, oh yeah, I lost I lost twenty five and no, I lost forty pounds after I left the FBI. Yeah, but you're a professional pickleball player now. So. Of course, yes, absolutely. That's where it all goes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I, I saw so I've, I've read all these articles about your brother here mm-hmm. here in Oklahoma. Yes. Uh, is he going to get booed when he go, gets in the SEC and has to go back and play his old team? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because there was an assistant head coach that he couldn't bring with him for a variety of reasons. Um, and so that is causing some issues. He took four players with him 
that were coming. Okay. It's more incoming. He didn't take any existing players. He took yeah. like the four best incoming players. So he okay. really he kind of nuked their bench a little bit. But yeah, he doesn't. He's got a year of freedom, and then next year he goes into the back in the SEC, and when he has to go play Ole Miss, it'll be it should be entertaining. So, but he loves it there. He loves Norman. I have not been to Norman, but he he raves about it. But he's coming from Oxford, Mississippi, so it's really not. You really didn't have to have that much to to, to impress him. So. <laughs> You know, you know what? I actually love Oxford. Um, I went to, I think I told you, I went to Louisiana State University. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a beautiful campus. Oklahoma's a really clean campus. Okay. Like if you get up there, it's not going to have the state of the Oaks like you've got at Ole Miss or LSU. Uh, but it's a really clean, newer looking campus. Norman's a, uh, it's got a very small town feel, but you are uh, not that far from Dallas. You want to be in a really big city. Not that far. You're really close to Oklahoma City for like a small city feel, but bigger than Norman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need to come to Oklahoma. I need to come to Oklahoma City just to go watch the AAA baseball team because I'm playing MLB 23 and I'm the center fielder on that team right now. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I'm leading the. Tri- I'm reading triple. I got the. I'm. I'm leading, I got the triple crown going in the AAA for the Oklahoma Dodgers. <laughs> Well, if, yeah, if you ever come up, we'll, we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely meet up. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, so, are, you're in Oklahoma City, right? Are you outside of it? <laughs> No, no, I'm I'm in Tulsa right now. Okay, how far is that from Oklahoma City? Oh, it's it's an easy drive. Gotcha. It's you know, it'll, it'll take me about an hour and ten minutes to get there. All right. Well, that gives me. More. But but my, my my dad's place is in Edmond. Um. So if you come up, I'll just stay the night at my dad's place. Cool. All right. I'm sure this is this has been a fascinating part of the podcast for everybody who stuck around and still listening for the three people that said I'm still going to listen. I'm not. They're, they're still clicking thirty. Are they talking cyber yet? Are they talking cyber yet? Well, Clint, thanks so much for coming on board. If you were, if someone was to ask you, hey, my son wants to be an FBI agent, would you recommend it? I would. So, so I would recommend it with the caveat that they really have to want to be a part of law enforcement. Yes. Um, we have. So I'm. I'm sorry to extend your podcast here a little bit. Darren, You're good. No, I, feel free. There's no strict time. I, I was over our applicant um, and recruiting programs in Albany. Mm-hmm. And we would routinely get people who would say, I want to be an agent, but I don't want to carry a gun. Ooh, yeah, that's no good. Um, so just be aware that for all the things that are said about, you know, the FBI is an intelligence community asset. Mm-hmm. It is, but agents are law enforcement officials. And so I would absolutely recommend it for your kids. Um, but my son wants to be a nuclear engineer and doesn't necessarily want to carry a gun. And if he doesn't want to carry a gun, then that's not something I would recommend. Right. It's good advice. All right. Clint Judd, thank you so much. Well, I will, I'm going to try to get the, uh, the inspection reunion podcast on just because I think it would be funny. Yeah, no, it'd be great. I'm going to need you. I'm going to need you to, um, to lobby Tim Duran to come on though. He's the, he might be the weak link, but so we may have to just keep pushing them. So yeah. All right. Sounds all good. right. Thanks. All right, thanks. Dan. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank all you. Right. So again, I want to thank Clint Judd for joining me on the podcast. It was a great discussion. Hopefully we can have him and a couple other guys on maybe have, like we said, a little round table about certain things in the bureau when we were there, that would be interesting. Um, next week, hopefully we'll have some, um, I'll talk about cybersecurity news and notes, things like that. If I don't find anybody to interview between, now and then, I do thank you for taking your time to download, listen, promote the podcast wherever you can. As always, you can follow me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Instagram, uh, the Cyber Guy at Instagram, and Darren Mott on LinkedIn. I have a Facebook page, but not a whole lot on there, so I wouldn't, you know, spend a lot of time looking there if you really weren't that interested. So, uh, as always, know that if you understand the threats targeting you, you can assess your risk, proceed wisely. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoy and have a safe. 4th of July celebration. We will talk again soon.